What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 4th, 2014. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. Game one of the Stanley Cup finals are tonight. They take place in L.A., forecasts have a high of 84 for game two also in los angeles then the series moves to new york highs in the 80s again that's okay even though it's hockey the games are played inside the ice will be cold freezing in fact but what's getting me hot yes here's mike's hockey hot take my outrage on ice what's getting me hot is that the governors of each state, as they do, made their bets. And they are the lamest bets ever. If the LA Kings win, New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, will ship them a hockey puck commemorating on-time budgets because California cares. I know why Don Rickles uses the term hockey puck as an insult now. New York will also ship a basket of food, including buffalo sauce from Buffalo. Buffalo, I checked. It is a city in New York, but it has as much to do with the New York Rangers as Rome, New York, has to do with the Sistine Chapel. So this buffalo sauce is in a basket of foods from throughout New York made by artisans and chefs who would never root for the Rangers. There's that buffalo sauce from Buffalo. There's wine from Orleans County, also like Buffalo. Those guys are Sabres fans. There's a Speedy, which is what they call a grinder or a hero or a hoagie in Binghamton. Yeah, the Rangers used to be strong in Binghamton. Then the minor league affiliate left town. Now it's the Binghamton Senators. They don't like the Rangers. There's like some sausage from Onondaga County and some pasta sauce from Oneida County. These are all Sabres fans. And then finally, moving downstate, there are oysters harvested off Long Island's shore from the Bronze Seafood Company. Islanders fans. There is one item from someone who could possibly be a Rangers fan, and that is a red velvet cupcake from a store in Harlem. Except red velvet's not even a thing, so this is the lamest bet ever. But if you want to get even more lame, it's what California will give to New York if New York wins. California Governor Jerry Brown will ship New York a book on California history, because New York cares, and also a Lumberg organic brown rice cake. Oh, it gets even tastier than that lightly salted variety, just in case you thought that winning the Stanley Cup should be any fun. Well, I th- actually, Jerry Brown has it right. It's a total disincentive to win the Stanley Cup. So today on the show, we'll have Maria Konnikova on. She'll be talking about delayed gratification. But that won't be the first interview up because that would be weird if it were. And in the spiel, I'll be discussing political speech. Some of the words you might not even consider to be part of political speech. It's downright nutty. But now, a whacked out GOP primary in Mississippi.
The results of the GOP primary in Mississippi are in, and what they lack in definitiveness, they make up for an intrigue. Put another way, they could be a symbol of the changing of the guard, or the sustaining of the guard, or the decision to substitute a forward for a guard. And what I mean is this, six-term GOP Senator Thad Cochran lost to Tea Party-backed State Senator Chris McDaniel, but since neither got 50%, it looks like this will be a runoff. And it was and possibly will continue to be a nasty, nasty race. Joining me now is Dave Weigel, who covers politics for Slate and was in Mississippi covering this race for a stretch of time. Hello, Dave. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I don't think you are one of the few people, if only people, to say there'd be a runoff. And the reason that it's so surprising is no one even knew about a third candidate that was in this race, right? There was a guy who... Literally had no no campaign website, no presence whatsoever. Just this guy Tim Carvey, who his name was on the ballot. And my theory, based on re- previous reporting and the political science that's so popular right now, is well, look in a super negative race, there's going to be a, a number of people who show up and say, "I hate both these guys," and just vote for the person they've never heard of on the ballot. And that happened. I, there, almost two percent of people voted for him in a race that was within one percent. So they got forced to a runoff. It only would matter in. I think six states that have that that have that threshold. There's a number of ways to look at this, and some of it are about, well, what will this mean for the future of Mississippi? But a lot of people are like uh, saying this is a breaking of the trend of the Tea Party not doing well. I have my problems with that analysis for a number of reasons, but do you look at it as any sort of referendum on the strength of the Tea Party? I do, because the theory for why Mississippi would be a firewall for the establishment was multifaceted. It was, one, Mississippi is poor, and they, people admit that. It was striking when you'd go up to Republican voters. You don't hear that in most places with strong right-wing Republican presences. Right, and to back up, we need this money. This Thad Cochran, the number one argument bolstering him is he'd be a top guy on the Appropriations Committee, and re-electing him means he'd be getting more money for Mississippi. But go ahead. Oh, that was it. He was going to be appropriations chair. If he loses now an ultimate intrastate rivalry, the appropriations chair will probably be Richard Shelby of Alabama. So I, I've been saying, hey, if you have a property on the Gulf Coast in Mississippi, eh, just move it to Mobile. They're probably they're going to get more money next time there's a hurricane. So my argument about why this might not be a referendum on the Tea Party is very specific to the weaknesses of Thad Cochran. And to me, it doesn't seem that the knock against Cochran was that he was more left than the GOP primary voter. It's that, let's be honest, he's kind of losing it. One guy was a very energetic, hard-charging, um, you know, really super sharp, I don't know, super sharp, but seemingly pretty sharp guy. And you had interactions with Cochran where he didn't even know... you. Could couldn't be clearer. You were talking about, I forgot what the example was. You'll remind me. His campaign ads. He was running campaign ads that pointed out that a supporter of McDaniel, I'm trying to be, you know, cool and legalistic here. A supporter of McDaniel had had gotten access to the nursing home where Cochran's bedridden uh, wife lives. She's been in the hospital for, I think, a decade. And taped a video and it, it, it broke out. McDaniel's campaign denounced it immediately, but Cochran was running ads of the guy with McDaniel. I mean, it's kind of your worst nightmare where if you take a picture with somebody, then they get arrested. Yeah. <laughs> you could be linked to them. They were running ads of that. And I said, hey, why do you think it's important to run that TV ad? And he said, I don't understand the question. So I asked it a different way. And he said, well, people can run any kind of ad they want. It was his ad. He just yeah. didn't seem to realize that there is an ad by him that had mm-hmm. every reporter who could point this out had interaction with him. That was just a little bit off. Uh, yeah. 
Right. And that is my only reason why it might not be a referendum on the Tea Party, because of, you know, it's as much a referendum on the uh, ability of the incumbent. And so if Cochran actually did retire, what would that have looked like? Would McDaniel be the candidate of the establishment at this point? It was very clever. I mean, it's an example of how wired the counter-establishment, I'll just call it that because Tea Party has connotations and right-wing has connotations. So the counter-establishment, they were trying to make this happen. Uh, in the Club for Growth early in 2013 bought TV time, just kind of gently encouraging that Cochran to retire. And in October, McDaniel got in the race before Cochran had made a decision, it was still, I mean, the guy dithered for most of the year. He got in the race. Club for Growth spent money advertising him on TV. So Cochran only decided at the end of December to run again after a lot of money had been spent, a lot of organizing had been done to weaken him. That is the counter-establishment working in a way that the left has not quite figured out how to do this. The one time, the one time they did that recently was Joe Lieberman going down, right? Yeah. This is a, a concerted effort that, that paid off and... The thing you have to credit the establishment with, I guess, is that they really did throw everything they could at McDaniel. They they vetted the guy. Uh, they they dug into him the way you dig into a general election opponent. They found his old radio show clips where he was, you know, actually probably an ordinary right wing Mississippi yeah. Republican where he'd make jokes about Mexicans and things like that. But they they, they threw it all at him. And yeah, they also yeah. threw a bunch of ads at him that were really inaccurate, you know, blaming him for, you know, uh, funding Common Core, which was when really he voted for like, I think I think I worked out the math to be in a four billion dollar bill. One seven thousandth of that spending would go to Common Core. So they did they did a lot of nasty, dirty political ads. None were with anyone wife who's suffering from dementia, but they did the standard nasty, dirty political ads against him. They did. They attacked him for being a trial lawyer, which is actually, I like that, those attacks because they tipped the hand of who the establishment was, who it was composed of. That's the, the Chamber of Commerce's cocaine. I mean, it's, it's attacking trial lawyers. That was their, their mission actually in Mississippi for years was taking out judges who gave you know, who, who, who approve big settlements to you because you elect judges down, you elect Supreme Court judges down there. Uh-huh. So they were kind of going after everything that they thought the Republican voter would be angry at because they were in the past. And they, they underestimated how many Republican voters are angry about different things now and how far right they've gone since Barack Obama was president. And so the general consensus is in a primary, voter turnout is small. In a runoff after a primary, it gets even more concentrated. So the most, uh, I guess, party loyalists, but also the most fervent voters are the ones who come out. And in those situations, the insurgent, the Tea Party candidate, usually has won. Do you think that will hold to form here? I think it definitely will. The problem for Cochran... Well, there's a bunch. I mean, we went through a bunch. Yep. One of the new problems for Cochran is that in a runoff, you have to you can only vote if you voted Republican in the first round. If you vote in the Democratic primary, you can watch, but you can't you can't play. And Cochran actually appealed in the closing weeks to Democratic voters, and he did well there. He did really well in the Mississippi Delta, which is the mostly poor, mostly black part of the state that usually goes for Democrats. Mm-hmm. If they voted Democratic in the primaries, and a lot of them did, they're voting for their local mayor and for all that stuff, they can't go for him. So you're going to have an even more conservative electorate this time, and you're going to have less interest from national groups because they just don't think this is not Delaware. This is not Connecticut. This is not Rhode Island. This is not a place where right wingers lose. Uh, You can be pretty darn Republican and win this thing. How much do they want to blow here versus trying to get somebody over the hump in Iowa? Uh, I don't think they will. They're going to 
talk a bunch of nonsense about how, how interested they are, but I think they're going to slowly back off. All right. Dave Weigel covers politics for Slate, and he has a great podcast, too, called The Weigel Cast. Check that out. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter GIST at checkout. Squarespace is simple. It's easy. It's really pretty beautiful. It's just drag and drop. Whatever you have in your brain about what your website can look like, Squarespace is going to get you there easily. It's going to get you there through live chat and email support. They're located in New York City and Dublin around the clock. The plan started $8 a month, and if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain name. You could also start a trial with no credit card, and you could start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code GIST to get 10% off and to show support for us, and that's why we want to thank Squarespace for their support of the GIST. Squarespace, a better web, starts with your website. I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it. I'm about to lose control, and I think I like it. So said the Pointer Sisters. I don't know exactly what that has to do with our discussion upcoming of self-control, but I do know this. Walter Michelle, a famous researcher at Stanford, did an experiment where he put marshmallows in front of a bunch of three-year-olds. And he told the three-year-olds, if you wait a little while, I'll give you two or three marshmallows. And then he left the room. Some of the kids ate the marshmallows, some didn't. Well, the kids that ate the marshmallows had much less successful life outcomes than the ones who waited. This was known as, he called it, delayed gratification. It's come to be known as self-control. And now self-control is just the hottest thing in child-rearing and how to live your life studies. Well, here is Maria Konnikova. She comes on the show every couple weeks and plays a game we call Is That Bullshit? Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. And today we want to look at the idea of self-control, which I know is something that you personally studied, right? Yes, I studied with Walter Michel um, at Columbia, where he's teaching right now. So you have looked into self-control. I, it seems now like this is the hottest thing in child-rearing slash just being a better person. It absolutely is. I mean, ever since Walter Michel first did the marshmallow studies back in the 60s, um, it has only been gaining steam. So before he was really the only person studying this. And then, you know, when he studied the Bing sample, who are his original students from the Stanford Elementary School, well, Stanford Preschool, they're a little bit younger than elementary school age, when he started following up with them um, and realized just how predictive the amount of time that they originally waited for a marshmallow was, you know, predictive for SAT scores, predictive for income, for health, for happiness, for your drug use. You know, if you had, if you waited longer, you're less likely to use drugs. You're less likely to smoke. You have lower BMI. I mean, all of these different things. And the more of those relationships he found, the hotter the topic became. And so now, I mean, he's not, he's not, even close to the only person studying this. Was it a good study? How How is it structured? It really was. And when people think marshmallow study, you know, they think of, you know, three and four-year-olds in a room, marshmallows, you know, someone comes in, tells them that they can have one now, two later, leaves, and then they test the minutes. But really, the study was much more nuanced in the sense that they really tested a lot of these different 
outcomes and stimuli to get the best one mm -hmm. to make sure that this was truly a hot situation as opposed to a cool situation. What does that and mean? And a hot situation yeah. is a situation where it's hard for us to exercise self-control. For kids, a hot stimulus is something yummy, but it's not always marshmallows. I definitely would have waited because I hate marshmallows. But, you know, if you would put Oreo cookies, which they also used, I probably would have wanted my Oreo cookie. And so they, want, they really made sure to get the right treat for each child. And they also tested different ways of talking to them. Mm -hmm. So what will the experimenter say? Will the experimenter give them an exact time frame? Will the experimenter say, you know, I'm back in five minutes, I'm back in 10 minutes? Um, a three-year-old probably wouldn't be able to relate to exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And Which is why they ultimately dropped that yeah. and just said, I'll be back later. Mm -hmm. And they put it right in front of you, too. So they make sure that it's you know, very appetizing. It's not like the marshmallows covered. Yeah. It's not like the marshmallows in, in another room or under a table. It's right there in your face. So what did you study with self-control? Where did you take it? So I worked with Walter Michelle, but we looked at where self-control can can go wrong. So what is the negative side to this seemingly really wonderful thing? Mm -hmm. And what we found was that Basically, if you're always in control and if you're very good and if you're having all of these positive life outcomes all the time, you get used to success. You get used to doing well. You get used to being in control of events. So what happens when we put you in a situation where you're no longer in control? It ends up that the people who are high in self-control become more prone to the illusion of control. So thinking they're in control when really they're not. So, for instance, in a stock market situation, which is what I studied, you know, when really you don't control the stock market, mm -hmm. um, they're much more prone to think that they can tell exactly what the market will do. Right. And because of that, they don't learn as quickly. So when they start getting negative feedback saying, hey, your strategy isn't great, you better change it, they don't. They persist much longer doing what they initially did. And the people who are low in self-control say, oh, crap, you know, I'm losing a lot of money, and they adjust, and they end up with more money than the people who are high in self-control. So what's the real-world application? Cognitive tricks to teach you self-control. What's the real-world application or implication of that? Well, the real-world implication is to learn how to cool hot stimuli, right. but you really need to know yourself. So you need to know, you know, who, what is a hot stimulus or who is a hot stimulus yeah. for me and how do I counteract that? Because if you think, you know, about someone like Bill Clinton or someone like Tiger Woods, you know, these are people who have incredibly high self-control in most every situation. I mean, think of Tiger Woods, you know, yeah. lining up the shots. Clearly, though, he has a hot trigger. Yeah. If you look at yeah. his hot triggers, they all look very similar. Yeah. Don't think about that blonde waitress from the Waffle House. Put a frame around her. Exactly. Pretend Imagine she's a, she's a stick. Yes. <laughs> a fluffy cloud. <laughs> um, exactly. Maybe what we're really talking about is self-abnegation, denying oneself. Because when you decide to do something, it's not always the fact that ah, I can't take it anymore. Sometimes it's a rational choice, like I'm taking the marshmallow now. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Michelle initially called this um, delayed gratification. Yeah. So he didn't call it self-control. Now it's really known as self-control. But delayed gratification has a different connotation that's more similar to the yeah. self-abnegation. Like, I am delaying gratification for myself in the present so that I can get more gratification. Yeah. And so knowing what you know about self-control or delayed gratification, how do you how do you use your knowledge to make your life that much better? 
Well, or I... to get what you want in <laughs> that much more time. You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and trying to analyze my own hot triggers, which is really hard to do. You know, to try to figure out well, where are the things that I'm most likely to lose control? And I have a number of those. You know, for instance, there are these really, really great chocolate chip cookies mm-hmm. um, on 72nd Street at Levain Bakery, and. If that thing is in front of me, I am going to eat the whole thing. And these are huge. And I will eat it, even if I'm not at all hungry, because I love them. So I try to avoid just going there altogether. And that happens to me, you know, with a lot of the foods I like, even when I'm not hungry. I have a huge tendency to keep eating. And it's not just food. You know, I have this with the internet. Sometimes one of my hot triggers is my phone. And so often... I know that I'm really bad at self-control in those situations. And so I do the ultimate distancing strategy, which is just avoid it. Um, But were I to be faced with one of those cookies and just feel really terrible about myself, I might potentially imagine it as a picture. Yeah. And then I'd eat it anyway. Or picture or imagine it as a golf groupie. And then you and Tiger Woods could somehow switch your hot triggers. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Delayed gratification or what's commonly become known as self-control, is highly correlative to successful life outcomes. Is that bullshit? That's not actually bullshit. That's true. But it's not. It's just correlation, first of all. And secondly, it's not the end-all and be-all. It's highly correlated, but it's not 100% correlated. All right. Maria Konnikova writes about the social sciences and psychology and science and studies all this stuff. She writes for The New Yorker and comes on our show to play Is That Bullshit? Thank you, Maria. Thank you. And now the spiel. Here at the NRA, we are big fans of... All right, let's play some NRA Mad Libs. What finishes that sentence? Here at the NRA, we are big fans of... Advanced technology, SKS, folding adjustable strike force stocks. Hmm. Big fans of tactical solutions, 1022, Picatinny scope, rail, and compensator. Maybe. What it really said was, here at the NRA, we are big fans of responsible behavior. In a statement on their website, the NRA was critical of these kind of pop-up open carry demonstrations where armed civilians make a show of going into a Starbucks or a Chipotle, ostentatiously displaying their AK-47. Though I want to be fair, I have actually seen some of these demonstrators, and their weapons are often camouflaged, so perhaps we should say they were subtly toting their three-foot-long deadly combat rifles. Anyway, the NRA in a statement said of the rootinous, tootinist, gun-toting cohort, A small number have recently crossed the line from enthusiasm to downright foolishness. And the NRA went on to say, It's downright weird and certainly not a practical way to go normally about your business while being prepared to defend yourself. To those who are not acquainted with the dubious practice of using public displays of firearms as a means to draw attention to oneself or one's cause, it can be downright scary. This was downright surprising coming from the NRA. Downright sensible, which is maybe why it was downright predictable that the NRA would soon withdraw the statement. But what about the use of that word 
downright. It stuck out like a sore charging handle stuck in the open position. Is downright a right-wing word? I mean, it's got right right in it, and it evokes down-home sensibilities, but there is no real proof that a Republican or a gun owner might say downright more than a liberal. However, we do have a list of words that do skew either Republican or Democrat. Matthew Jenskow, a University of Chicago economist, generated a list by combing through the congressional record to find how Republicans talk and how Democrats talk, and he used the research in an interesting way to judge media slant, and we'll talk about all that on a future gist. I did a good interview with him, but for now, let's just think about the words. Among the most popular two-word phrases that Democrats use are words that you'd expect them to use, like privatization plan or wildlife refuge. The big, obvious Republican phrases are things like death tax repeal and border security. There are some phrases or words you wouldn't expect, Grand Ole Opry, but, you know, that does skew heavily Republican, so maybe you would expect it. But middle-class families, that could go either way, right? It happens to be more Democrat. Hate crimes laws, surprisingly, that one's more Republican. So what I did was I composed two paragraphs. One is chock full of Republican phrases, and one is chock full of Democratic phrases. Try to guess which paragraph is which, and also tell me the phrase that you thought gave it away, and we're going to ask you to tweet your answers to us at SlateGist or go to Facebook.com slash SlateGist. Okay, here goes. Here are the paragraphs. Let's call this first one Bachelor. TV's The Bachelor committed such an abuse of power that the poor people known as bachelorettes couldn't choke back their bile as they dealt with Juan Pablo, a Venezuelan Lothario picked to increase viewership in domestic South American and Central American TV markets. So the producers, most of whom had lost their jobs while working on the Shahs of Beverly Hills, had to change the rules. They installed a system of checks and balances and restored order with simple common sense reforms, including the stipulation that every contestant could kick Juan Pablo just once in a body part of his choosing. All right. Was that Democrat? Was that Republican? Here's the next one. We're going to call this one Stamp. The United States Postal Service has issued a stamp honoring cisterns. The either above ground or sometimes underground storage tank is credited with a million jobs created. Unlike a septic tank, the cistern increases the gross national product without containing too gross of a product. This is the third time the post office tried to honor the cistern, but in the past, toilets and artisanal wells were deemed more apt subjects for stamps. All right, was that Democrat? Was that Republican? And by the way, there are red herrings in there. It might not be as easy as you think, although you do have a 50-50 chance, so that's easy. And that is it for the show. Andrea Salenzi is bipartisan in her concern for the Tongass National Forest, which is a GOP phrase, and veterans health care, Democratic phrase. Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is similarly concerned with the solvency of Social Security, Democrat phrase, and the oil for food scandal, GOP. You can subscribe to us on iTunes while there. Do give us a review. That's nice if you do. A lot of you have. Uh, we do ask you to subscribe to The Gist, but we are also part of the Slate Daily Feed. We will send you an email every day when the show is ready at Slate.com slash gist email. We're on Facebook, Facebook.com slash slate gist. And email us at the gist at slate.com. You can email your answers to stamp or bachelor, Democrat or Republican, and why at gist at slate.com. Thankfully, the phrase get out of my dreams and into my car still manages to evade any strong partisan identity. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>